this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfellan, the host of I Change Justice podcast, and I'm here with Doug Gustafson with Homes Now, Not Later. Please introduce yourself. Welcome to the show, Doug, and give us an idea of who you are and what you what you do with Homes Now, Not Later. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm chairman of Homes Now, Not Later. We, we manage two tiny home communities in Bellingham, Washington to, uh, for people who are hum, homeless. Uh, we, we house around 50 people and our villages, are, we have no paid staff, so I don't get paid to do Homes Now. And Homes Now is... Both villages are managed by the residents themselves uh, with our resident managed approach. So the people that live there are the people that run it. And with that, talk to us a little bit more about each one of the villages and how long you've been in operation and, you know, Hmm. why it's why you continue to do this, even under the stress of the emergency COVID conditions and all these emergency disasters and all these things that have been going on that have challenging for most people and you just keep on trucking. So talk to me about that. Yeah, well, um, Unity Village is, was our first village and that opened up about three years ago, almost three, uh, next month that will be, it will have been three years. And Swift Haven was opened in, it, we, our second village was opened in uh, December of 2020. And um, so, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of challenges, but there's been a lot of opportunities as well. So, so for example, COVID, COVID had a lot of bad sides to it, but there was also some good that good that came out of it as far as from our perspective. Um, COVID is what allowed us to have the resident managed staff. It created a loophole in um, our permit that allowed for us to um, have that. And what I mean by that is that previous to COVID, our permit said that a non-resident board member had to be on site 24-7, kind of implying that homeless individuals were not able to, are not able to manage a, a site safely and effectively and supervise the site themselves. And that's what, what that was written into our permit. But after COVID hit, the permit changed, or the, the permit didn't change after COVID. The per, they added new conditions to the permit that said, the homes now will not let any unnecessary board members, unnecessary guests, unnecessary visitors to the site in order to prevent COVID spread, while not removing the other provision that says that a um, board member had to be on site. And at the same time, the governor ordered everybody to stay at home at that time. So we started staying at home. We didn't let the city know until seven months later uh, and no problems occurred. Everything was fine. It ran great. Um, And we made the legal argument that none of the board was essential for the safe operations of the site. Wow, um, that's significant. And it's true. It's true. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm greatly involved, but, uh, but um, if I disappeared tomorrow, uh, I think things would maintain and continue um, effectively. And so what I'm saying is that, is that, that prov- so one part of the permit was conflicting with another part of the permit, and we pushed the envelope 
and said, we need a more reasonable permit to come into compliance with. We're not trying to be out of compliance, but we need the permit to become more reasonable. And the city on a Friday in August, August of 2020, yeah, August of 2020, said, you know, we're going to decide over the weekend whether to shut you down or not. And by Monday, they decided that they were going to change the permit and give us what we wanted. And that was after we did 20 videos where all the residents said they don't need a babysitter, they can take care of themselves. And um, and I made the argument that none of the board was essential for the safe operations of the site. And that's how we got it changed. But it was a risk. So one of the things that I'm hearing you say is that you've learned how to talk with local people at, because this is a local situation. You've kept it local. You maintain it local. You talk to people directly. You look at the details of the situation and negotiate on the way that the rules run so that people can't just scapegoat themselves out of being responsible for rules. They can't just walk off and say, oh, that's what it says. You say, well, it says that, but that's in conflict with this. So you're arguing with them in a way, or you're negotiating Mm -hmm. on real, truly the issues of law or the issues of conduct and saying, this doesn't make sense because of this practical thing. Look at it and let's talk about it. Right. Yeah. And there is a, and and everything is a negotiation. Um, Yeah. Uh, And I think a lot of, a lot of what prevents people from making progress, uh, even if they have well-meaning intentions is actually, they don't understand the law or the permitting language or that, that type of language. So you, there might be a loophole, there might be something that will let you get through it. But if you don't know what that is, then you might make a mistake that gets you in trouble or gets you shut down or whatever. But you can't just be totally compliant either. Otherwise, you can't get any changes that you need to get changed. So it's it's kind of like riding the wave to, to, to you know, not to be to, uh, riding the wave in order to not be legal in legally questionable territory yet being able to make progress. Right? So you challenge things where challenge is possible and yeah, you learn yes. how to not challenge the things that are inflexible. So you don't put yourself in a position where you have to fight over something that's not not winnable. Yeah, right. Uh, pick your battles, basically. Um, and you've also learned how to use social media and how to use how to teach your your people who are living in these tiny home villages. You're teaching them how to speak up and how to talk and how to give testimony. I mean, I heard you say you put out a bunch of videos from these people who are living there and made it human, like mm-hmm. real human. This tiny home village. This isn't a homeless problem that's out there in the ether somewhere. It's a human problem of living safely during the COVID crisis in a safe environment today. Yeah. And it's always referred to legally as a homeless encampment. Oh, it is. um, Yeah. So it's, so when you hear homeless encampment, that puts a very different vision in somebody's head than literally seeing on camera, this is what the village is. And here's so-and-so that lives here. And then you find out that they're just as smart as you are, you know, and um, they, and they are responsible and they want to get their life back on track. And, um, and then that, that humanizes the situation to where opinions change and the pressure builds for the right pressure on the right people at the right time who can, who are in a position to kind of make these decisions, such as the mayor, such as the planning department, um, things like that. 
And people also too, you know, when they, they, a lot of people get confused about how the government works too. So like they'll appeal to the city council for a decision that's actually the mayor or the planning department, or, or they'll get county council confused with city council and stuff like that. And there's a lot of people out there like that. Well, I mean, all of us get confused about that yeah. kind of stuff. That's not just all, all those other people. <laughs> well, no, I, I was confused about it. it, too, until I was started doing this. And then over time, I'm like, oh, OK, I see how this works now. But I, I laugh at my early days of trying to do this and just running into all kinds of like, <laughs> just being ignorant about how the system works. And so it's got I've gotten gradually sharper over time in it. And now I feel like we've been able to make progress, uh, but it's a long road. I, I, I found that, and my tolerance for being able to handle stress has gone up so I can handle more, but it, it's kind of like each new event that happens that's more stressful than the last makes a stress from a lower level, like from before seem no, like normal or like me- medium feeling to me. Like I just tried to, um, I just try to focus on the long term because the the, the the age of the internet has kind of created a situation where there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of news. There's a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of um, a, a lot of infighting. There's a lot of um, hype. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on, and everybody hyping it up. And they and hence they're a lot of times they're not even focusing on what's right in front of them. Uh-huh. And, and the way that I see it, and I'm not a workaholic or anything. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like blowing a gasket with the amount of work that I'm doing. It's literally, it's more like working smart rather than working hard. And I, in, in my head, I'm just like, okay, if we want to get something done in the future, we just have to do some stuff today. And even if I only did two or three things that day, it, you, after a year, that's a lot of things done, right. Instead of like, Oh, I'll get to that next week. Or, Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll do the people think it's about doing one big thing, but it's actually about doing a hundred or a thousand little things that add up to a big thing. You know, it's interesting. I've been playing with that myself as president of the restorative community coalition, because for a long time, I did a lot of little, 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 little tiny things that seem to not add up. And then they did add up and then suddenly came along a big thing that needed to be focused on and done. And if you wouldn't have done the small things, you wouldn't have been able to get the, because the, and the big thing, um, and I've encountered those too. The big thing is what I refer to as the opportunity. So sometimes it looks like there's not a lot going on and you're just kind of humming along and then some, an event or something pops up and you're like, Oh, Oh, wait a minute. I need to act now. Um, And we, you know, that that was so. For example, that's how we opened the second village, Swift Haven. Um, only a few months after we were potentially going to get shut down because we didn't do the board member thing, we got a second village. And how did that happen? That happened because there was a, a camp at City Hall. There was a group managing that camp. They were negotiating with the city for a site. The negotiations broke down because the, the the group the pr- group wanted something the city wasn't willing to do. And so, but the city had offered them something if they did it a certain way, which they weren't willing to do. So, um, and I'm not I'm not putting a value judgment on either side here. But what I'm saying is that at, since they had put their cards on the table as the city to make an offer like that to this group, who then the negotiations fell through, 
then that's when we popped up and said, hey, you know, we can do this because we're already doing it with Unity Village. And, um, you know, the city wants to wants to solve a problem and get something done here. Right. And so we can do it. And um, and um, then we got online in two weeks because the mayor wrote an emergency executive order. And it wasn't a permit. I wrote an emergency executive order to use the upper Frank Jerry Fields parking lot for Swift Haven. The county developed, delivered the structures. Homes now is the operator of the site. And that all went, that all came together from zero to, to everything in two weeks. And um, the longest part of development was socially like getting the re like residents to get along and work together and, and all that. That when you open a village, that's the hardest part. But what I'm saying is that if there wasn't a camp at City Hall though, and and everything's normal at quote unquote normal, and I I email the city and say, hey, you know, we're we're willing to set up a second village. Do you have a site for us? It would always be a no. There's no site until the pressure is on them for a site to find one. So it's it's an it's an opportunistic in a way, but it's an opportunistic to make a progressive change as opposed to opportunistic to take advantage of. Right, but right. Still, but you still, it's like playing basketball, you know, you're playing a game and you're pivoting and you're passing on the thing. Right. You got to make this a, move at this time. I think of it like chess. You have to make this strategic move at this time at in order for things to go through to a destination where you know okay now we're helping 25 extra people that otherwise absolutely would not have been helped. and and yeah you can't and it's not about exploitation it's about you see that an opportunity that could pass you by is popping up right now and you have to go for it uh at that time otherwise it's not going to happen even if all other things considered you could do it like you because we we we, there was no doubt in my mind that we would not overextend ourselves and that we could run a second village, but that's a separate thing than the government approving a site for you to do it on. And, and, yeah. And, and, um, and that was the opportunity, but we had the skill to where they felt safe or least risk. And that's how the government works. They're the opposite of a business. They, they are very um, risk averse, meaning that that they they will take a 100% chance of a mediocre result over a 95% chance of a great result. They talk to me talk to me more about that because I've been observing as they brought in this million dollar project that isn't serving the same value because they're they're risk averse and they needed to do it according to all the rules and all these this and all this that and it created a more economic, I mean, I'm going to use this term, it's economically hostile to the taxpayers, actually. Right. And, and I, I would say that that's, I would define that as anti-economic. So, so for good. example, economics or economy means the thrifty management, frugality in expenditure or consumption of money, materials, etc. So when you're spending more money to get a similar result or a less result, that's anti-economic. Wow. So explain how that actually works, because I know that you're, you're, you've got a background in business and money and, and stuff. I'm a small business owner. Um, I have no employees, but I am a small business owner and I do not have to work 
for an employer, which I, which I can't, I, I can't go back. And I, I, I've been a small business owner for 12 years. If I tried to go back to working a job, I would, be, I would be super miserable. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like I dread ever having to do that again. Um, so, so explain to me the difference between the cash flow and the actual money. Like, Cause this is a perfect opportunity to explain the difference between public corporate thinking around economics and money and private public or private corporate, you know, it's private person, mm-hmm. but whether you're free enterprise or a small local business, you've got a different way of thinking than people who run the business of government and the business of using mm, taxes yeah. and money. So explain the difference in these two situations. Okay. So, so for example, um, with, what we do and what I have to do is I have to make sure that I do not run out of resources to get things done. So that, so that means that, you know, with the villages, for example, each village has its own bank account. Um, we don't take, we, we, we have taken a little bit of government money as far as like, if they, if the government gives us some air conditioners for the hot weather events, which they say, Hey, we want to give you guys some air conditioners. And we're like, okay, and then we buy the air conditioners, they reimburse us. But, but as far as money for like staff and stuff, we don't have the paid staff. And that's where most of the cost comes from as far as the differences in, in those models. So um, the, if you pay somebody 50,000 a year and then you have seven or eight, nine employees, then it starts to get into um, you know, the million dollar range. And, um, and not only that, you know, um, so, so it's it's like you got to be efficient with your resources, right? So not only that, um, if, if somebody's homeless, right, they're an expert on homelessness. Meaning, for example, if they've had to go through the system and they know how to get uh, services and resources and stuff like that, they they can oftentimes help other residents find those resources faster than somebody who might be just fresh out of college, um, fresh to the system. Um, and having to find the services for somebody, you know, living under their care or whatever. I'm not saying that we, that, that, um, that, that we can serve everyone. We can't, uh, but as far as have it operating on as few components as possible while getting a, as best of a result as possible, bang for buck, we're using, we're being very economic, um, so, so you are using the, the mentoring and the humans that are part of your system as an asset within the system. So I'd yeah. like to talk some more about that in a minute. We need to take a break. This is Joy Gilfillan with the I Change Justice podcast, and we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. At the Restorative Community Coalition, we are seeking donors and legacy contributions for our Restore Life Center. To learn more about the Restore Life Center project or donate directly, contact us at info at therestorativecommunity.org or visit our website at www.therestorativecommunity.org and click on the donate button. Welcome back. Doug Gustafson, talk to us a little bit more about how you're working with not only the homeless and the people, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who do have skills, they're just unemployed. So yeah. if you can put them to work rebuilding their life, I mean, that's what I did when I was a farm kid. On, I mean, right. we all contributed, you had to learn how to do it. So the skills of learn by doing is an extremely good asset in this situation. Right. Talk to right. Us more. 
Well, yeah. So, so for example, I see with, when it comes to the homeless issue, that there is a stereotype that um, if somebody's homeless, they're totally unskilled and um, not stable enough to operate um, and, um, you know, might be totally addicted or have too much mental health issues and not able to like contribute. But uh, a lot of our residents have skills like, right. You know, like uh, uh, somebody's uh, used to be an auto mechanic. Somebody else used to own their own construction company, um, you know, things like that. And so when, so what happens is that somebody with the construction skills starts building and then somebody else that's, that maybe is like, Oh, I don't know anything about construction, but I'd like to learn, you know, and then they start to pick up a skill that, you know, they otherwise would not have. Um, and the fact that it relies on you guys, Hey, it's your place to live. And, you know, whether this place succeeds or fails or continues or not is on you guys to help make this work. And, um, and the, and the, they do on their own, they choose to do it without being paid to do it. And, um, and they, and of course they live there and that is kind of, is, is kind of an incentive because, you know, if they had to go find a place rent cost wise or things like that, it would be much more expensive for them. Um, so, so there, it's not, it's not like everyone's just doing it out of the kindness of their heart. They, they get a benefit from it as well. Um, a place to stay, um, and a community that is helping each other out because each village has a vehicle. Hey, let's go get, let's go to the grocery store and get groceries. Who wants to go? You know, it's easier than the bus. You know, there's a lot of benefits to living in a tiny home community. Like people come to the front gate with, donations of everything, pretty much food, um, clothing, stuff, uh, uh, all kinds of small furniture, all kinds of other stuff. So instead of going out and buying everything, you know, fresh when, you know, there's plenty of stuff people don't need that you can use, then, you know, that's being very economical. And that means that you don't need millions and millions of dollars to to set up future sites because it scales up because all you need is the right people who, who can manage and operate the site, who are in a position of homelessness. And um, we, they leverage their skills to get things fixed and accomplished. And, and yet, yeah, we have our ups and downs. It's not perfect. But um, I can say the one thing that's always occurred is progress, meaning you can look at it. How was it six months ago? And it's always pretty much better now than it was six months ago. And you can say that at both villages. Sure. So you've constantly got a, 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 it's almost like growing a family. As people grow, they grow. And as they grow, they give back and they leverage and they learn. And they it's like the tinker, the, the baker and the candlestick maker kind of thought. Like in a community, yeah, you learn to cover each other. It's almost like, you know, in, in an in a athletic world today with people who have the money to attend a bunch of athletic clubs, they might go and get CrossFit training so that they get stronger and more capable right. of performance. And that's what you're talking about with very human skills. Yeah. And, and then, and then, and it's a team, right? Everybody has different strengths and weaknesses. So then there's other people that, Hey, they're not, they're physically kind of messed up health wise, but Hey, they're really good at dealing with the public. And you know, that, you know, then there's other people that are really good at construction, other people that are good with computers, other people that are good with cars, other people that are good at being like, you know, somebody's makeshift counselor. They're not a qualified counselor, but hey, they help. They they care about their their neighbor, and when something happens, they listen and 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 work through a problem with them. And then it, and 
and ever so everybody has these different strengths and weaknesses and when they work together then it it's easier for everyone and then that means that you get more done with less resources and less hours and less time required to um fewer hours uh, sorry uh to um accomplish that so but, give uh, me a specific example of the money like What's the difference? Like how much, what's the bang for your buck that you're getting out of your, you know, your village as different from mm-hmm. one that's operated by the other kind of corporate thing that has to live okay. within and hire people. Like okay. I did an interview. The reason I bring it up is because I did an interview two, two episodes ago with a guy who was a rehabilitation counselor for a juvenile prison in Washington state. And he was talking about how he is resistant as a rehab counselor. He's resistant about the move motion to want to bring in all qualified mental health counselors to be the coaches, as opposed to having a mix of people who, who have mental health counseling, professional training and working with people who have real life practical experience. And he said, you know, violence begets violence. And that is not something you can train or learn about in a lab. It's or from books. It's about real world learning how to work with people. So what's the difference from a money standpoint? Well, the difference from a money standpoint is that is that um, if we if we have a situation like we do where you have no paid staff or whatever, everybody is still trying to find their housing outside the village and stuff. If they want to upgrade, you know, beyond the village, then that that's great. We support that. Um, but to, in order to operate the site, it, 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 some hours a week are required. We don't write the, We don't really write them down. We don't really we don't really like um, like regiment it. But it, but it ends up being kind of like a part-time job, like really, uh, and everybody kind of pitching in a little bit. That, that means that um, they're, they are not, they're not on a 40-hour work week. Um, they, again, I go back to working smart, work, not working hard. Sometimes you put in a few hours. Sometimes you don't have to because it's all done right now. Um, but if you have that full-time job position, you, you, that is always a 40-hour-a-week thing. And so you actually will have, as that person, not only getting paid, um, which requires a significant amount of money per year, um, but you, the, a job could have maybe gotten done in 15 hours or 10 hours rather than 40. And you multiply that by the number of weeks in a year. And, you know, that's, that's what I would define as inefficient. You're, you're like, if the same amount got done, and somebody had to put in 40 hours a week to get it done and the amount of financial cost with it versus somebody that could get it done in 10 hours, then um, that, that's where this, it's most, all these, ex, a lot of the excessive costs come from staff themselves. So, and I'm not saying it's wrong to get paid to do that. Okay. Like some models need to have paid staff and everything like that. But as far as how, how we, we don't blow our budget very quickly is because we don't have paid staff. If we if we had even one paid staff, if I paid myself even a low salary, uh, we wouldn't have enough in our bank account to cover our basic costs. Um, and so, um, but because we've sacrificed that, um, we can cover all the costs we need. We're mostly self-sufficient, um, but people have to pitch in a little bit of their time. But it, it's, it's, you know, it's it was, it was like that when I had jobs too, it's like, hey, I can get this work done in 20 hours instead of 40. Can I go home early once I get it done? No, you can't. 
you must sit in that chair from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. no matter what. And then at the end of the day, you um, spent a lot of time sitting while there's nothing to do. And then you're, it's just because of a corporate culture saying you have to be there for that long. And, um, and then they lose money and it just gets more expensive. Right. And so it's like that with, it's like that with the, it's the same thing. Like if somebody takes a million dollars in government grants and they hire 10 employees and you can get to a million dollars really fast. Uh, but, but my argument is like, Hey, if you can get it done with no employees, uh, at, at way fewer hours, you can just use that million dollars to set up future sites that do the same thing. Set up so because you know it costs about two hundred thousand dollars as a one-time fixed cost to set up a village, okay, and then perhaps utility costs after that. Which the by the way, the utility costs are about the same as one person's apartment for the whole. Wow! Site. So talk to me. T- hold on. Talk to me about that. Um, okay, so at Unity Village, right, um, our monthly costs, utility costs vary based on the time of year. So in the winter, it's a lot more than in the summer. And that is mostly because of the electric heating, because we have uh, infrared radiant heaters in every unit. And so when we had the cold snap in January, our electric bill was probably 2800 a month because of the um, because of the electric heat. But in the summer, it's like 230 a month. Right. And so that's what I mean by how big these costs can swing when it comes to electric and and heat. Other than that, water is provided by the city and we don't pay a utility bill on that. Garbage is about 300 a month. And um, the porta potties are around 750 a month. Um, And so half of our mostly, usually like half of our monthly costs are just the porta potties. We would rather have flushing toilets, but there are a lot of sites that are available, but there's very few sites that have the sewer infrastructure for flushing toilets. Uh, as far as sites we've been offered, we, that would be our next upgrade. But what I'm, but what all I'm saying is that um, divided between 25 people, you know, that's not a lot. That, that means that if everybody threw in like 50 to a hundred dollars a month, that covers all of their monthly expenses at, at, as far as what you would normally be paying in rent um, and, utilities and, um, and everything. And, and you also wouldn't be having people coming in with donations to your apartment or anything like that. Right. So it's just a different model and, uh, and it's, and, uh, it's very economical. Uh, and at Swift, we don't pay utilities because the deal I made with the mayor, when I spoke to him about, um, setting up a second village, as I said, I'm a little concerned about overextending ourselves financially. Um, but not we, we're not going to overextend ourselves as far as being able to pull this off. But financially, though, uh, we're a little concerned. So if the city could cover the porta potties, the um, the water, and the electric bill for Swift Haven um, and the garbage bill, um, we'll take care of the rest. And so, the, and but at Unity Village, we do pay all of our own utilities to the to Puget Sound Energy to SSC and everything like that. But when we opened up Swift, we made a, a deal there that the city would cover those costs and um, we would cover the rest. And so um, we kept it simple. Um, but again, that's also just a drop in the bucket. Okay. The electric costs for, for a whole site and the water and sewer and all or yeah, sewer and garbage and all that are 
a, a few thousand a month, like, I mean, like 2000 a month or something like that. And so, and, but if you had even one full-time staff, that would be 2000 or 3000 a month minimum. And if you have 10 full-time staff, then, you know, that might be like a million dollars a year or 700,000 a year or whatever. And then it, and then it goes up every year. Um, well, and your return on investment on that money is enormously different. One is simply um, a person employed. On the other yeah. side, you're employing, what, 20, 25 people in a tiny home to take care of themselves and learn how to grow into taxpaying citizens. Yeah. So they get to move out of um, tax codependency role right. into a tax productivity role so the multipliers on that are, are huge. Let's let that sit for just a second, take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Doug Gustafson from Homes Now. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find links to them and a list of our donors on our website at therestorativecommunity.org. You can also donate to support our direct services and our restorative community outreach and initiatives by clicking on the donate button. Now we return to I Change Justice. So talk to us about that multiplier effect. Talk to us about the difference that you could imagine. And I want to put it in relevance to what's coming up because we've got another, I mean, right now we're dealing with summer issues, potential summer emo- emergency issues during a COVID crisis. We've had two years of this. This is very different than when you first started mm-hmm. a, f- a couple of years ago. And so the rules are different. The landscape has completely changed. So talk to us about what's coming up, because I, I was reading something the other day that you you may have to move by next summer from the home, the village that you have down by Post Point, and you're going to have to relocate. So what are you looking for? What are you needing? What's the scope, the landscape? Mm. What are we talking about now? Mm. Yeah. So um, so um, as uh, around one year from now, and uh, roughly one year from now in 2023, the, the, the city of Bellingham is expanding the sewer treatment plant. And, um, and Unity Village is currently located right next to the sewer treatment plant in the footprint of, of them having to upgrade it. Meaning like there's gonna be a literal building or filter or whatever they have right, like right there. And so we, we, would have, we will have to move. The city has has given reassurances that they will have somewhere for us to um, move to. That they're looking for sites. Um, the the that they seem to be over time. They seem to be more strongly indicating yes, we will find a site for them. Whereas before, they were a little non-committal or kind of ambiguous. And I think that the, the again, it, it comes down to the pressure thing because we have strong public support and and the pressure to find a site for us is stronger than the pressure to shut us down. Cause if they shut us down, that's a PR nightmare for them. You get, you throw a bunch of people out on the streets, you demolish all the tiny, cute, colorful, tiny homes. Cause there's nowhere to move them. Uh, it would just be a disaster. So the path of least resistance is okay. Find a site for them. Now setting up a site does incur some costs. So, you know, it might be a couple, you know, like a hundred thousand dollars or something to like set up a site. But then once it's set up, you know, we, we can, and once we move, if, if, you know, I don't want to say it's a certainty uh, and I hope it is, but, um, but once we move the, the municipal code allows for five years on any one particular site. So okay. after, so after we move, the clock gets reset again to where we could be there for a maximum of five years. 
Same with Swift Haven. We got, just got a two-year permit for our second village at Frank Jerry Field. It was only supposed to last for four months. The city had on their website and everything, it will close in April of 2021. And I, everything was all about how it would close in April of 2021. And then um, we got two-month extensions after April, just kept getting two-month extensions. And then we finally got a full permit that gives us two years there. So we took we took what was supposed to be on this in the city's view, an extremely temporary site. Maybe they thought we wouldn't be able to handle it or something, and and turned it into a longer term site. But the maximum that we're ever going to be allowed to stay in any one spot at all is five years, and that's baked into the municipal code. Um, and it used to be uh, two years. So, uh, but last year. But that's baked into the municipal code because the local community council created that municipal yeah, code. Yeah. So they can change it. They Even change that it. is changeable long-term. Yep, yep. They can change it to seven years if they want. Whatever. Sure. But the, here's the cool thing is that you're talking, are you working mostly just with the city or do you also have to meet and negotiate with the county on any of these particular sites? Does, the county doesn't have anything set up like this, per um, se, do they? No, not yet. They did put an R. This brings me to another point, though. Uh, they they did put out an RFP for anybody that would request for proposal for anybody that was interested in working with the county to set up anything related to homeless sheltering and stuff like that. But we we decided not to apply to that RFP because of one major condition in that, which said that any agency that decides they want to provide shelter will be required to go through the Wacom Homeless Service Center and the opportunity council to decide who gets into your program. And so what is that as a complication? Can, and I wanna, I wanna precede that with the fact that I've got a personal grain to pick with this because when I'm working at the Restorative Community Coalition with people who have criminal histories, we typically have a real problem negotiating with anybody in the city, the county or any municipality, any legal system because the rules that they live by absolutely almost shut down the very thing that we're teaching, which is how to help people get back in the saddle in terms of criminal yeah. justice. So I'm sure you have the same issues or similar. Yeah. So explain it without compromising your situation. Yeah. You know, yeah. No, I, I have no problem explaining. So but you, you asked earlier though, do we work with the County or anything? Not, not for our particular sites, but but I am on a number of I'm on the coalition to end homelessness committee or whatever it's called. I'm on the coordinated entry governing body. These are and county officials are at these meetings. Um, and so coordinated entry is what I was talking about. And that, that's what the that that's it's a HUD level policy. Uh, so it comes from from a federal level and they mandate to the state level and then the state mandates to the local level. And, um, and, and so the, they put rules in place that say something like, if you take any funding from the, the city or the county, or you take land from them or whatever, then you must be required to join coordinated entry. And what that means is, okay, so right now, the way it works with Homes Now is if somebody wants to live at one of our villages, they sign up on our website, homesnow.org. We immediately give them a call. Um, if they, the background check is clear and everything. And that typically takes about a week to send their name to BPD and hear back and, and all that. And, and then after that one week, then we invite them down and take, and they can be housed within a day or two. 
very quick. Now, by contrast, coordinated entry, is, but here's the downside of, of that, right? So if every agency does that, which it, that's the way it used to be, then what that means is that you would have to apply at Lydia Place, at Homes Now, at, at Garden View, at the Missions, other, other program besides Base Camp, Agape House. You have to apply to all of them separately, which, which kind of sucks. But, the, but what the coordinated entry means is that you sign up in one place, a, an organization in, in any county is designated as like the caretaker of that. And so that, in our case, that would be the Opportunity Council. And then based on the data and the metrics they have provided to them, they would determine who would be a good fit for Agape House or a good fit for Homes Now or a good fit for Garden View. And then they would, they, they would get in that way. And, um, and that, that is, and, and you, would you would have to be required to accept the referral. So you can't put any extra um, qualifications on anybody. So that obviously is a problem for an organization like ours because uh, there, there are, because there are people that pass the background check and would technically qualify, but they wouldn't do well in a community living setting, for example, or, sure. or maybe they wouldn't work with other residents to make the site of what it is or whatever. They, they just be like, well, I got a place to sleep now. And I'm not saying that that's bad either. I'm just saying that, that, um, what gives, what gives an, oh, and it says in the coordinated entry guidelines that there will be no side doors. So when I was first learning about coordinated entry, if it really was a referral system and they did sign up at Opportunity Council and then they say, hey, Doug, we got a name for you. And then I interview them and we go through the rest of the process like normal while at the same time having our website open. Great. But no, the way it works is that we would not be allowed to take in, in um, people from our website and we would have to wait for the opportunity council to use coordinated entry to decide who would work in our village and who wouldn't when they don't know how our village really works. Like, so they, so I feel like they would have, they would make worse decisions as far as who would be a good fit there. It says that coordinated entry, it goes from a model centric approach to a people centric approach. Mm -hmm. um, that's what it says in the guidelines. Um, and uh, I, don't I don't necessarily agree that that's the right way to do it. And they say it's more equitable because they because the, they present it like if you're the provider, then you would put unnecessary extra um, conditions for somebody getting in there than than they would, and and hence they could define that as unequitable. But I but in my in my experience, it's the opposite because you have people that like are literally if they're begging on your doorstep that they need help. And you tell them like, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to go through coordinated entry, and it's a very and it's a bureaucratic process. It could maybe some somebody's in crisis; they might need a place in five days or a week, and and now it's gonna be sixty days, and by then they've gone through hell, mm -hmm. and and then they might not even be in the right spot once they're there. But you know, it's and I'm not saying it wouldn't always work out. Sometimes it pro it works out great, whatever. But what but I'm saying that. That, that it's our organization, it's our model, we should be able to choose who, who, who lives there in, in our, in, who we accept in as in our model, right? And um, 
And, and I think that they're, it's all being done in reverse. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to put every organization under one model, one way of doing it, a one-stop shop. And there's no proof or evidence that that way of doing it, that, that coordinated entry, there's no proof or evidence that it is the most effective and fairest way to get people housed. There's no evidence of that. Even well, at the local level, people aren't don't seem too thrilled about it. Like, well, these are mandates and... You know, there's a lot of stuff we have to do and a lot of stuff. And if they haven't told us we can't do it, then maybe we can. But they never there's I've never heard anybody be like an enthusiastic supporter of it, even if they're the ones implementing it. But anyway, I don't I don't want to get too off on a tangent. But what what I'm saying is that um, the the city or any each of our new permits, they give us more conditions and they seem to they've teased and they've slowly been pushing us in this direction where at some point they're going to tell us we will only renew your permit if you start taking people from coordinated entry and not your own application process. Right. Which is a domination system that actually puts the government back in the, in the steering wheel of helping people, but they're doing it based upon their own risk and liability assessment, as opposed to the actual in fact, real world conditions that the human that is at risk Mm -hmm. is living with. Right. that can't work within those systems guidelines. I right. And what they need to do instead is absolutely the opposite where they need to have, they need to have more models. They need to, you know, homes now is a model. Uh, other organizations are different models and we need a lot more of them. Uh, we yes. need, and, and um, there is risk associated with setting up a lot of models. You might have some failed experiments, you know, like, like you try something, it didn't work. You'd have to shut it down or, you try, you try something and it partially worked, but you'd like it to work better. You know, I, I think we actually have to redefine risk. Well, be- no, right, right, right. But what, and you also have the risk of like, let's say you set up 40 models, then you might have a situation where one model is half empty. You know, maybe you have a village that has 11 people living there because everybody's got a place to stay rather than. And maybe you have base camp has only 50 <laughs> people staying there because everybody else has a place to stay. Right. And so that, it, it, that has, that, that carries risk, but the risk of that is much less in my opinion than the risk of, of putting every single person under a monopoly of one application process that you concocted as a bureaucracy, as the best way to do things. And of course it's incredibly labyrinthine and complicated and, and, and so if anybody was just starting out and wanted to help anybody, it would be almost impossible to start out. Like, and, and, and then all of the conditions are like, well, in order to help people with housing, you have to have experience of helping people with housing before in order to uh, even get started. And so, you know, that we wouldn't have been able to do that. We, never, we weren't qualified on, we technically when we got our first tent encampment. And, yeah, and, I mean, and, that's... And, that's part of this process of learning to move back to community. Cause in fact, what we've got is we've got a national problem with housing and economics. We've got a banking and insurance industry that's out way out there. And when we start working at a local community level, it's right here right now where we have homeless people and we have people who, who were in extreme crisis this last year. And the emergency services division, from my observation, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they weren't willing to do the emergency disaster work for our own civic citizens, even though we had effectively, we had civic refugees living 
who needed shelter, but because of rules or regulations or resistance by, by bureaucracy or authority, whichever one it is, or jurisdiction, it actually blocked the helping of people. And there were an enormous number of local citizens and people like yourselves and volunteers for our organization and volunteers for SOS and volunteers for all kinds mm -hmm. of people who actually put their physical bodies at risk, helping people during emergency COVID conditions. And that is, that's a different kind of risk, but I think our community, this is my personal opinion on your interview, <laughs> that we really do need to have a community conversation about who's at risk. Is it, the, is it the human beings who live in Whatcom County? Or is it the people who have jobs that are paid for by tax dollars? Or is it the organizations and the corporations who are have limited risk liability because of the way they're constructed? You know, we need to actually talk about risk and the real risk, because if you have a couple of people who die, which is what happens in the jail. Sometimes yeah. people die and then you get lawsuits and then the, the, the legal risk down the road is huge. Right. So we need to talk about those things in a different way. So. Yeah. And I, I, I think so too. Um, and, and yeah, I do think that there's some, a, a little bit of a disruptive element too of, of what our model does, because it, you know, if, if you can pull, if you can pull off a similar result with no paid staff versus the, the standard model, which has been around for, you know, a long time now, many decades now, um, it, that then, um, you know, it, people notice that the community notices that and, and that, and that makes, you know, policy as it is look like they've made some mistakes or they've gone in the wrong direction. And, and it's sometimes it's easier to kind of stop or contain um, the, the disruptive element. And I say disruptive in a good way, because mm -hmm. you're not, we're not disrupting com the community or, or the, the city, the society, but there's business interests at play. Uh, some call it the nonprofit industrial complex. Mm -hmm. uh, it, so if, for example, you can kind of make it where, oh, it's getting worse and, oh, we need, oh, people aren't getting help. And then they, they constantly aren't getting quite enough help. That will increase budgets. That will increase taxes. That will increase um, grants. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, we got to spend more money to solve this problem, but it, it's not really about the money. It's about the tactics you're using to solve this problem and, um, and whether those tactics are effective or not. You could probably do it on far less money than is currently spent right now if you adjusted their ta uh, tactics uh, to, a to different tactics to solve the problem. So you've got about a minute or two here to close the, the conversation, Doug. We'll have you back at another day down the road. Okay. But talk about... Um, what would you say to the people today who are really currently distressed about what's going on, the fact that taxes are coming in, the fact that we've got millions of dollars coming in in corporate money from the federal government, but it's being somewhat blocked to actually get into the street. So what would you say to close up what it is that you've been doing and what you've learned over the multiple years you've been doing this? Uh, well, what I've learned over the mul multiple years I've been doing this is to think long term. Uh, in the short term, you're going to run into some serious frustrations. Um, get your message out there. Get do videos. Do do um, you know research how the research how the law really works. Research how this. It's not it's not a matter of agreeing with it. I don't agree with a lot of stuff in the system, but you, you but that is no excuse to be ignorant about how it currently works. 
And if you do know how it currently works to a moderate degree, you can get around a lot of things and get it done um, and work together with others. And, um, and, and most importantly, though, get, share information with others, get, get your story out there. That human factor puts pressure on. And, and I found with, with, when dealing with the government, especially, that they can move very fast and if, if they want to. Awesome. If the, if, Thank the pressure, you. if the pressure is enough, they can move very fast. And, um, and that requires us to not be silent. It also doesn't really work a lot of times to hold the sign and yell and protest. <laughs> it doesn't, that doesn't a lot of times do it. Um, so, but, um, but getting your message out there, coming up with ideas for how you would do things differently and, and, and being consistent and keep just think long-term, not, not this week or next week, but a year from now, five years from now. And, um, if you do, if you move with small progress, it's still progress. So if you keep moving in that direction, eventually you get to where you need to go and you'll surprise even yourself at what is possible and achievable. Awesome. Thank you so much, Doug. You are one of the heroes in our community, in my opinion. And I think that, you know, we'll keep on trucking and things will change in this community because it must. It's time and it's, it really, we must. Humanizing is the most important thing we can be doing in the next year, certainly, and in the coming Mm -hmm. few years as we And working together as individuals because the the system's not going to save us, okay? Like, they're never just going to pivot and then suddenly, oh, wow, they implemented this new thing and it's working now. No, it relies on us and to to carve out a space, a small space and then expand from there as far as um, a, a parallel system within this system that we have to deal with. And then eventually that pressure leads to gains. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Doug. Appreciate your being here. And thank you listeners for checking in. Follow us on the social media. Doug has a platform. What's your website? Just real quick before we close. Homesnow.org. Homesnow.org. Thank you so much, Doug. Have a good day. Take it easy. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.